Hey everyone, welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefhofer. So here's something you might want to know about me. My grief resume, as it were, is substantial, weaving throughout my personal and professional lives. Not something to brag about, just how my life has worked out. But then again, yours might be that way too. So I figure, let's talk honestly and openly about what it's like. This podcast series will include my candid reflections about my own grief journey, along with some authentic, intimate, meaningful, and honestly, sometimes joyful conversations I'm having with friends and even strangers about their own grief journeys. I hope you will discover something new, find comfort in your shared experience, or perhaps pick up a phrase or action that might help you or someone you love. And no doubt, along the way, you will be reminded that just when you least expect it, bam, there comes grief. That sneaky bitch. In this episode, I sat down with my new friend, Mickey Kay. Mickey shows up in this interview, as he does in life, curious, authentic, and full of humor. He shares a bit about how a horrific bike accident at the age of 20 changed the trajectory of his life, and perhaps more importantly, opens up about what he has learned about grief and love, sorrow, and joy. I just love the story of how Mickey and I met, because it reminds us that though grief sometimes means people disappear from our life, people who had been in our close inner circle who just can't handle bearing witness to the pain that we are enduring as we travel our grief journey. Sometimes new people show up in our life. Not only do they show up in our life and accept our grief journey, they embrace it because they often see something of themselves in our story, in our journey. And that's exactly what happened when Mickey showed up at a coffee shop that I was sitting in journaling and no surprise reading a book about grief on a visit I had to Oakland, California recently. I'll let Mickey take the story from here. Right, so um, it all started at uh, Timeless Coffee. It's a coffee shop in Oakland. Let's They're give really them a great. plug. Hashtag yeah, Timeless Coffee. All, hashtag Timeless Coffee, all vegan, but you wouldn't even know it, and they don't even make a thing of it because their whole manifesto is, you know, vegan can be normal too. And it's amazing coffee, really good food, great pastries. Anyhow, um, <laughs> So my wife and I go there regularly, and this was a, I don't remember the day of the week, Lisa, do you? A Wednesday, maybe? A okay, Wednesday? a Wednesday. It was a Wednesday morning, mid-morning, and um, I often go there, and I came in this morning and saw Lisa sitting uh, solo at a table, taking notes in a notebook and reading a book called It's Okay That You're Not Okay. Did I get that right? Yeah, fantastic. Well done. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, there's there's quite a backstory to where my thought process was at the time. But long story short, I'd come off of this transformational workshop growth training um, the past weekend and was feeling very inspired and wanting to be, you know, a source of contribution and connection in my world. So uh, I saw uh, you sitting at that table, taking notes and reading a book that sounded very compelling that I'd never heard of. And the first thought that went through my mind was, oh, man, I'd love to go talk to her and say hi and see where she's at. And then the next like 4000 thoughts that went through my mind in the next five seconds were, no, don't do that. She doesn't want to be bothered. You know, who are you? Blah, 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 blah. Uh, 
But anyhow, um, they, I'd recently heard this principle of you have five seconds to interrupt any fear-based, you know, angst-based thought patterns. And so I was like, I'm going to go do this. So I went up and said hi and asked you what you were reading and what you were interested in. And then we proceeded to talk for like 40 minutes about grief and, uh, you know, interpersonal relationships and emotions and all these unique things that then has turned into, um, like a really awesome friendship and this connection that we're here today. Yeah. Well, that's a great summary. I probably don't have anything to contrast to that. So we got our story straight, even without collaborating ahead of time. I think the thing that I would add, Mickey, that I think is particularly special is the, to me, as you talked about interrupting those stories in your head, which, dang, do the stories in our head just get in our way sometime, um, that you were able to just get rid of those stories in your head and be vulnerable and approach a perfect stranger because you had an instinct that there was something that we had to talk about, that there was something important to say. So I said that to you sort of off the air, and I'll say it on the air. I really appreciated the vulnerability it took for you to approach me and talk to me and then just share be curious about what I was working on and not run away as so many people do when I open my mouth and say the word I'm a widow and grief and loss and et cetera. And you actually just dug in even deeper and became more curious. And um, that was just kind of magical. So there's something really interesting. We'll talk maybe in our conversation today, but I speak about this often. So many people run from the very things that we all have in common. They don't want to talk about the pain. They think if they avoid it, that they'll somehow avoid it in their lives. And of course, you and I both know that's not the way it happens. So I appreciate um, you digging in even deeper and not running away when I when I said what I that I have this project called Reimagining Grief, and I'm doing a podcast called Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, and I want to speak and write and live in this world, and you smiled and nodded and said, actually, what I remember is, how can I support you to do this? It's really important. And I thought, dang, perfect stranger wanting to support me. This is pretty magical. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say, I mean, um, like for me, at least how many of my days and how much of those days do I go through where there's, there are few access points to that sort of thing with other people. Mm -hmm. So uh, you're, I mean, you're talking like it was very kind of me to go there with you. To me, that was like the most interesting conversation I had that day, if not that week. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you. This is just a mutual admiration society. Y'all don't worry about it. Um, okay, join the party. So be- I want to, I often start uh, my interviews with a particular question, but before we do that, uh, I wanted to share with you my intention and, and also really with our listeners. And that is today we're going to have a conversation, a really open conversation, intimate and vulnerable and authentic and probably sometimes hilarious and maybe full of swear words. But we will be having a conversation about what it is that interests us or brought us to the interest of talking about grief and loss. And one of the things I want to remind everybody is that it is no one's responsibility to sort of perform their story. And I think in our culture of consumption and voyeurism, we feel a lot of pressure sometimes to sort of perform our story for people. So in this conversation, you and I will be willing to share what we want to share and not share what we want to share. And that I just want to sort of put that out there. And on the flip side, I want to name that we are culturally avoiding pain, as I said earlier, and suffering, even though it's the very thing that we all have in common. It's our shared human experience. So 
I also want our conversation to be a way in which we start to normalize grief. We start to build a vocabulary, a narrative, and really a comfort with um, being able to talk about the hard things. So that's sort of just the backdrop or context to this. Is there any questions or things you want to add about that, Mickey? No, I'm just excited to see where it takes us and, um, and go with it. Awesome. So here's the question I've been really thinking about. I was going to say ruminating, but that has a negative context. Um, I've been really, I'd be really curious to know if you have ever thought about what your earliest memories are of seeing someone going through grief or struggling with loss or illness or injury. So it could be way back to toddler days or it could be, you know, just a few years ago. And when you think about what that first exposure was, who was the who was the person going through it? Who was the griever, I guess I would say? And what were the sort of emotional or practical or maybe even spiritual resources that person was drawing on to navigate that time? And, and what did that teach you? Yeah, great question. And so many memories that I can think of and God, have to be so many that I'm, I'm not even aware of. But um there are two that come to mind, and they're actually kind of maybe two different sides of the same coin um, with my mom and with my family. Um, so maybe I'll just start with the one and see how, see if we get to the other. Yeah. So uh, my mom um, has been when when I was young, um, even before I was you know aware enough to really conscientiously know what was going on. Uh, but I've been told by her and my dad really uh, lived with depression. And it came, it ebbed and flowed, but, um, I know there were some times where it was pretty incapacitating and she would be in bed most of the day and would be really unavailable to us as kids. And the only real memory I have of that is going into their room in our house in Sebastopol when I was maybe like 13 years old or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and just seeing her like in bed back to the, the door, you know, like tissue. And she was, I think just asleep, but I knew that like she had been crying during the day and my dad had told me and, um, and it, it sounds, you know, very dramatic as I hear myself describe it. But at the time, I don't even remember thinking anything of it. And that's not to say it wasn't significant, but I think that's more just to, to me feels like how much I'd normalized sadness and depression as like a normal way of being. Mm. And, uh, um, this day, part of me, you you asked how that has like informed uh, the way I've, I live now and the way I think about things. And I think in some sense, you know, this is all theoretical. I'm still like wrapping my brain around it, but as I think about it more and it's come up recently in a few uh, conversations, I, I do wonder how much that in me ingrained a sense of sadness or even depression or grief um, because she had grieved some, she has and continues to grieve many things, nothing, you know, obviously traumatic, but a general sense of loss and mourning. Anyhow, I think for myself that, that ingrained me somehow with a sense of, uh, that being a normal thing and, or just another part of life. And I've really struggled with that because, I mean, as you are well aware, you know, in society, there's really a, like, you know, put your smile on, wipe away your tears, um, sadness is a bad thing to be solved yeah. and happiness is a good thing to be worked towards. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm a fan of both, but I think part of me, uh, still believes that they're, like I said earlier, almost two sides of the same coin. 
and that there's something really special and sacred about both in a way. And for me, my connection point, like when I felt most grounded a lot of the time has been through the, you know, more on the end of grief or sadness. It feels sometimes it feels just really true and really, um, safe in a way or, uh, authentic in a way. I, I don't know the right way to put it. Anyhow, that's all to say. I think I, I grew up with some of that just from being around my mom who was living it, um, throughout my childhood. Um, Did you see her engage in any kind of Mm, what's the word I'm looking for? Did you see her engage or draw on anything that allowed her to relieve her suffering? Like, did she enact a support system around her? Like, what did you kind of what were the lessons that you saw or the vocabulary around what it meant to be depressed? Was she it was something she talked about or didn't talk about? Was it something she tried to seek alleviation? What was it sort of a shame conversation. Can you tell me a little bit about sort of like, what was the narrative in your family about that? Yeah. You know, I, I wish I could like tell you more specifically what it was, but I think honestly, it was just kind of treated like this is the norm now. So she, you know, she saw therapists and, um, you know, worked with uh, psychiatrists and antidepressants and she would, her and my uh, dad would go to counseling and things like that. And she was fairly open with us. I mean, I think she walked the line of being open and authentic and uh, transparent with her kids while also protecting them, you know, and yeah. being a caretaker still as opposed to like, you know, quote unquote, needing care from her kids. Yeah. Um, but I don't necessarily think she did the greatest job and not, I mean, to no fault of her own. Um, having been in those places myself, it's not always super easy just to like be a model citizen for how do I manage my own struggles with grief or depression. Um, so I think it's a mixed answer of she did some things, you know, some of the classic things and she also really struggled with it. Um, and I think that's probably the most common version of how that, how that looks for a lot of people. Um, the other side though. So the, so the other example, which also relates to my mom, but more my whole family around grief and maybe is a little bit better or better illustrates some actual tactics is, both my parents are veterinarians. And when we were young, um, we had a ton of pets and we always had, you know, at least two dogs and few cats. And, um, so we all really learned to love animals and for everyone in my family without fail, my brother, my sister, myself, my parents there, we all, you know, like religion to us is just as much animal connection as it is anything else. I love that. And yeah, it's, it's so good. So reliable. Um, and honestly, like what's not to feel spiritual and grounded and joyous and connected when you're with, you know, a puppy, yeah. um, <laughs> very simple, but works like a charm. Um, but so anyhow, we, that meant we have these really deep connections with our animals and felt really, like I said, almost even spiritually, um, connected in that way. And it also meant that we would, um, when our animals got old, it's not like we would drop them off at the vet and that was out of sight, out of mind. We would, we would see, see that process at home and be with them every moment of it. And we would, you know, when we finally put our animals to rest, we would do that like on our living room floor with all of us crowded around Mm. some of my most formative memories. You know, if I'm feeling a need for release or grief or sadness. And I like, I want the tears to come. I, that's what I go to. I mean, that's the image. And so Mm. that's where I feel like there was maybe more of, um, like a formative 
yeah. set of memories for me, which was that like such an incredibly um, mixed feeling of both joy and like celebration and like what wonderful lives we've shared with these animals. And also, you know, to be 10 years old and laying your head on your dog's chest as it is like stopping breathing and the heart stops like that is that's my memory of grief. And my memory there is with my whole family there, you know, doing it together Mm -hmm. in a circle, all, you know, mourning or crying and holding our loved one in this way that uh, felt you know, so right, like the right way to do grief. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so if there's a tactic there, you know, if I were to pull, extract something out, I think it's doing it and honoring both, like all sides of it, not trying to force it into a like, well, it was a happy life and now it's a sad death and let's get back to, you know, happy life again. Yeah. Um, This idea that sorrow and joy are like so close to each other. They are so that's thank you for sharing that. It's such a beautiful story. And there's so much to unpack in there, because I think you nailed so many common themes that we need to think about when we're thinking about grief was I think the model or the example that your mother and father set for your whole family was really around the power of a couple of things, the power of ritual. I mean, we all come into this world and we all exit this world and ignoring it and putting our heads in the sand isn't going to make us you know, not have to experience it, experience that. And so the way in which they sort of modeled for you all early on that the pain happens because of the flip side, which was the joy and the love and the connection that you all felt with those pets and to sort of honor and bear witness to their passing, um, while I can imagine as a 10-year-old was very difficult, also allowed you to see that love all the way to its end and I, in my mind, there's a real gift, not, I don't think that's a culturally accepted thing, but I think I've, for me, I've now been at the bedside of two people who have passed away in my arms and as excruciating as both of those experiences and a dog, actually my dog when I was about 10 as well, but being by the bedside of somebody who passes that you loved and being able to sort of see your love all the way right through to the end I think is a really important part of the grief journey if you have the opportunity to do that. So I can imagine that's really informed your ability to hold both of those truths to be happening at the same time, which is that deep, deep sorrow for the loss of what was and what will ever be. But also it's a reflection of the joy and the connection that was there in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and what you said about ritual or ceremony and I mean, we do it even when we don't know we're doing it, right? Um, like that's what my family was doing is having this little ceremonial ritual to honor and somehow kind of, I think, lock away a piece of what we were feeling forever yes. in ourselves yes. and to, you know, to remember and to have some form of like reverence. But yeah, the, the for ritual or ceremony to be able to bring structure to help us do that, um, yeah, I mean, I know I crave more and more of that in my life always. I think we've lost sort of culturally, I mean, I would say, you know, American white dominant culture anyways, the sort of practices, the sort of spiritual practices of ritual. But I think your story illustrates, too, that we don't necessarily have to borrow from other cultures or necessarily come up with something sort of formal and structured. It's just the ways in which we sit closely with our intention and our hearts and follow and find what is meaningful in that moment or for that group of people or in that family. So I think 
we sometimes worry that rituals have to look a certain way or be a certain way or or be even repeated time over time. But the lessons maybe that you learned, albeit maybe unconsciously from your family, was to just sort of lean into your intention and your spirit and your love and the ritual will sort of unfold as it needs to be. Because you know when there's something off about a ritual or not, you know, an activity. We all know that when we're really tuned into ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think there's something really powerful there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sounds like in some ways your family of origin, anyway, has sort of allowed you to sort of be in touch with those, the sort of circle, the cycle of kind of life and passing and what that means. Mm-hmm. How has... For you, how has grief shown up in your life or what is your experiences of grief in its broader sense? I think that's what I might be interested in talking with you about today. Um, Earlier, I was talking with a friend and former mentee and colleague who has um, been experiencing lupus for the last six years. And she spoke a lot and also works with patients who are... um, I was going to say battling, but I'm really having a problem with the battling language in uh, medicine right now, so I'm not going to say battling, who's been experiencing chronic illness, and all the ways in which loss and grief show up in those spaces. So I wonder for you, if you think about this sort of experiences in the expanse of your life thus far, how might you think about what you've learned about grief and loss and how you're navigating that for yourself? Um, yeah. I'm actually smiling to myself as like a few memories and like questions that always seem to come up. Um, so uh, maybe I'll share a little bit more about my story just because it is, it's really relevant here. Yeah. Um, and that's, this is probably the piece that comes back to me again and again and again, whether it's because I, it's coming up internally for me or because it's brought to me externally. And that'll, that, let me tell the story and that'll make sense. Um, so in 2004, I broke my back when I was cycling, um, just commuting to and from junior college at the time. And without getting into all the details, um, you know, that it it changed the way I am physically in this world forever. Um, and so I use a wheelchair now and my body works differently than it did before. And, you know, uh, with the details aren't necessarily super important, but the bottom line is there was a, for me, a loss of sort of who I had been and what I had had up until then. And then it's been a continuous uh, mourning process. And also, you know, all of the like rebuilding life and figuring out what, you know, who I am now, what's the same and how do I grow into the new parts. But long story short, there was, there was mourning. Like I lost a part of me. It felt like I lost part of my body. It felt like. And so uh, there was a definitely an initial massive period of grieving early on. And we could go into that because I feel like yeah. right after trauma is, such a strain it can be a very strange and unique time of grief or anger you know all the yeah Yeah. like all the different phases of grief and mourning um and then there's also been sort of the longer tale um which goes on forever i've come to find yes Uh, um when we take our last breath i unfortunately for all the people who want us to move on or get over it uh newsflash it lasts for the rest of your life and our 
And I was reading an author earlier today who was talking about that it's really about we become transfigured or transformed, that we aren't moving on or getting over it. So I like your description of the long tail end of it because it really implies the sort of going off into the sort of sunset, you know, that it comes with us and transforms with us along the way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's kind of like anything we do in life, like going to the gym. It's not like we go to the gym for a year and then we're fit. Dang it. Like from then on, we're just fit. Nikki, you know, it's, you're it's, busting my it, bubble. I was really hoping <laughs> that was going to be the case. Okay. Well, yeah. that's no, keep going. a conversation great, for man. another like, day. Yeah. yeah you know, the, I don't, if you want, if you would be willing to, you mentioned maybe we dive in a little bit about what that early grief experience is like and the sort of absurdity really of it all, because I think that is something that is particularly for the folks who are caregivers to somebody is the hardest time for, for, I mean, it's the hardest time for the person experiencing it, but it's also, I think the hardest time for other people to bear witness because the pain is just so immense. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Immense is the right word, at least in my case. Um, yeah, I, I mean, God, there are so many pieces to it from just feeling, you know, this, cinematic Hollywood sense of like, Oh, it feels like I woke up in a nightmare and I can't, I just can't mm, wake up. Yeah. You know, I'd always heard that and thought like, well, that's, that's very, you know, nice dramatic a script, but yeah, very dramatic. And then I remember very clearly one day feeling the, Oh my God, this is what that means. Yeah. Like there's no, you know, never in my life. And this is due to so much privilege in a lot of ways. Have I had a situation that I was not able to work through or confront or like really get the outcome I wanted mm. or convince myself, well, that's not the outcome I want. This was not one of those. This, I mean, over the course of many years, I've really come to a much steadier peace with it. Yeah. And, and also I do want to just preface that I don't, uh, I can imagine people listening to this and doing the trope of like, oh, this man who lost something and is now disabled and has to live through that and what a triumph. I will tell you my life is so much better now than it has ever been before. And some of that has to do with, you know, the disability, some of it doesn't. And largely it has nothing to, you know, it would have turned out one way or another just because Regardless. I think. Regardless, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This was a catalyst for certain things, but I don't know that it really fundamentally changed anything, you know, from black to white or vice versa. Right, hard to know what that journey um, would have gone. How, just for context, how old were you when this happened? So I was 20. 20. And it was about 15 years ago. In November, it'll be 15 years. Okay. Okay. So um, you were 20 and you had this mm -hmm. experience of being like, I'm in a, in a nightmare, except I can't wake up. And this. Yeah. Yeah. And in a very like one flew over the cuckoo's nest feel being in a, you know, intensive rehab unit in a hospital is a bizarre place. Um, and, and bizarre because of what everyone's gone through, but also just bizarre because there is any given day holds these highest highs and lowest lows. And it's in that for me, at least, and I think for a lot of people, it can be so hard to make sense of like, is this progress? What is even happening? Right. You know, um, like to give some concrete examples, you know, to wake up in the morning and feel like my body is totally broken, not even mentally, but like literally Physically. my body just feels like I can't do anything right now. And that's feels terrible. Um, you know, like talk about a, a bad, like I woke up on the wrong side of the bed. It's like my body really just didn't, Need didn't to, show up you, with me. You didn't show up today at all. So to go from that to then, you know, doing a, a 
a little bit of physical rehab where, oh my gosh, for the first time I was able to transfer from a bed to a chair or, you know, for other folks that might be, um, you know, with a brain injury, oh, I was able to actually remember three cards in a sequence or, oh, I had a stroke and I was able to, you know, lift my fork on my own, whatever that might be, can be the biggest sense of elation. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, that sounds like such a tiny win, but in this bizarro context, that's like the biggest victory possible. Um, you know, to then again, have, you know, friends come to visit me and it's going to be so amazing. And like, right when they show up, I like shit my pants because, you know, I've lost control of my bladder for the time being and blah, blah, blah. So it's just this roller coastery thing for me. It was, again, I can speak from my own experience and, you know, the people I talk to, but it's, it's, um, the expanse of the human, the emotional rep, sort of the emotional scale of, of all the possible human emotions you could be feeling can be compressed sort of into one 24-hour period or maybe even one hour period. Absolutely. And to try and make any sense of that, let alone structure a grieving process around it, it's like it's survival mode, right? Yeah. So I think if I might ask you to reflect a little bit, one of the things I think about that early period that you're talking about is you're 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 showing up and you're living and you know you're living because you're having the most extreme emotions you can ever have. And as you said, it's just sort of survival mode. And to me, I think part of the reason that we're only just in our extreme emotions and not anywhere else is that we build our lives by telling stories. And those stories include making meaning of past experiences and projecting our future experiences. And in that moment, when you woke up in the hospital or you're, you know, going through rehab or for me, you know, when I came home and had to tell my daughter that her dad was dead, you don't have a story that you've crafted anymore. Your story has been shattered. Like the editor just came in and ripped your manuscript to shreds. So how do you make meaning and and show up? Does that is that an apt description of what that early time oh, yeah. was like? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I mean, what you just said about not having a story. I remember that like there was a very concrete visual of it. Felt like someone had just sort of ripped the projector screen, and I saw through it for the first time. That like oh, there is this other side of life. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't know. I'm imagine that's there's some form of that when you found out your husband was gone or whatever the moment was yeah. for you where, oh, shit, there's this other side that I, at least for me, I had not really experienced. It's a bizarro world, new reality that you now all of a sudden have to learn to navigate, you know, all over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Showing up in a new mm-hmm. land with new language and new manners and new everything. And there's no going back. And I think, too, on that note, when when trauma is significant enough or when the grief is big enough, um, there can be a tendency for support people, family or nurses or you know counselors or whatever it can be, although I think counselors get trained in this pretty well these days, is to, um, you know, to start crafting that story as soon as possible. The story of like, what does this mean? How do I process yeah. it? Where do I go from here? And I know for me... Uh, it was just, there was a period where it was just like, this is too early. I'm not able, like my brain is not capable and my heart is not capable of even trying to like make a sensible tale out of this quite. And nor should you because it doesn't make any sense. Absolutely. Right. But I think you're speaking to something that's one of the, is one of my, I'm going to say pet peeves, but one of the reasons I'm doing this work with reimagining grief and doing this podcast is that. I think we all live by stories. And so when someone you love, like for your family showing up to be around you or the nurses, 
they can see that your story is, you know, untethered, that your story has been crashed. And all they want to do is to help you rebuild your story. And also it's really uncomfortable to be around somebody who doesn't have a story. And so while the intention there is good, like how will you get back to normal? I mean, I remember people saying things to me like, you're young, you'll meet somebody again. I'm like, uh, not even in my thought process right now, but thanks for trying to, but again, not to diss them, but that their intention was trying to say, it's okay, your life will get back to normal. Not realizing our life is never gonna be what it was before. Right. Yeah. Right. And I found it, yeah, it gets back to normal, but it's not the same thing as before and it never goes away. I mean, that's the other question I've heard is like, how long did it take for you to get over it? And I'm like, well, 15 years in count. You're like, again, I'll let you know, hopefully when I'm 99 and, you know, checking out at the end. Yeah, I think that's such an important um, revelation I've been reading, doing as I know, because you and I have started a book exchange, a book swap. Um, I've been doing a lot of reading lately about the real importance of just expanding that in our cultural vocabulary and and really pushing back against those narratives that we are going to return to something before that we were before and we aren't in any kind of transformational experience in our life death or injury or illness or other or a, a trauma experience because um, long before this I experienced a few pretty terrific violent trauma experiences too and though we would all like to not have had those experiences we're not going back and that doesn't mean we're stuck in that story or we're you know not moving forward it means it just is a different way of being and we will carry those lessons and for some of us we find ways in which there's beauty in that and for some of us we don't we just figure out a way to sort of move forward with that mm-hmm. but that's really up to the individual and not to sort of the caregivers to to do that but i have empathy for people i don't know about you when they were early on especially in the early times in the hospital what were some of the things people were saying to you that at once maybe frustrated you but at the same time you could see their good intention are there things that stand out for you? Yeah. Well, the, in the hospital, sure. And then sort of ever since, too, um, because I think in the hospital, I was so inward focused mm. that like it almost didn't even matter. Like, yeah, it was like seeing things through a veil or something. Yeah. But I mean, it's it's interesting because in the hospital, the medical staff is trained to be so conservative in their suggestions and predictions. Yes. And so it's all kind of doom and gloom and rightfully so like they, you know, there's liability and they've got their considerations. So my hopes were not low and I, you know, I had nothing to do except rehab and sit in a room and wait. So, you know, I've raided the medical library and read as much as I could about all the actual physical information that's out there. And so I had a sort of, I'd say realistic and somewhat pessimistic view on my prospects. Yeah. Um, and then of course people want to come in and and visit and provide and support and like, yeah, talk about empathy. What better friends could I ask for than folks who want to come in and like support me and feeling quote unquote better. And you know, it's, uh, it's hard to hear someone be like, Oh, when you get home, we'll go do this or that, or, you know, Oh, we can totally do. And I'm like, dude, I can't even put my pants on yet. Like, I don't want to think about that. That sounds terrifying right now. Um, but there's just no way to know. And I mean, I think it's probably a truism of all forms of being in support. Like I mostly just wanted to be able to feel safe feeling whatever I was feeling and grieve. And fortunately, like my family and friends, I did. 
should have that too. Yeah. And even some of the like hospital staff, um, because it was, like I said, pretty unpredictable what I'd feel in any moment, whether I'd feel really pissed or really optimistic or like totally devastated. And from all those, all those places, I think mostly I, and I think most people just want to feel like they can put their head on someone's shoulder or, you know, get a hug or just feel heard and seen and like where you're at is okay. Absolutely. You know, you, this is a theme that's, is, I think I've gotten the most positive feedback um, from people when I've shared around this idea. And actually, it's interesting how life happens. I look back at my graduate thesis, which was uh, quite a few years ago, and it was really on the, um, I'm a social worker, for those of you that don't know, and my graduate thesis was really on the power of bearing witness and doing that really in silence. In fact, my entire project presentation was sort of a nonverbal presentation about that and how absolutely difficult it is for us to hold space for people and it's not just about fixing but in the story stories that you shared your friends were doing something that of course came from a great place which was trying to help you imagine a future in which things return to quote-unquote normal right and so like the intention there was good because they wanted to sort of feel a world that and help you see a world in which your life could return to some sense of normalcy, and frankly, for them, that they could imagine a world in which Mickey was the Mickey that they've always known. But that power of bearing witness is, if I could sort of impart one tool or skill set on everybody I know, and by the way, it still takes me daily practice. I, I catch myself saying things often, even as you know, experienced as I am in this work, whatever that means, is to just really bear witness and see people where they're at and help and hold them. I think I shared a quote with you in our little book exchange, but it might be worth sharing mm-hmm. because I think it's such a powerful one. And that is Parker Palmer, who if y'all haven't read Parker's work, it's quite beautiful. And the quote is, the human soul doesn't want to be advised or fixed or saved. It simply wants to be witnessed, to be seen heard and companioned exactly as it is. And I think that even even the use of the word soul is really important there. How did you think about have you thought much either before before this moment in your life or since in these 15 years since about the connection between your body and your soul, especially for you because the grief and the 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 injury was a physical one to you. So how did you reconcile or kind of live together with your body and your soul maybe before the accident and after the accident? Or how do you think about soul? You know, honestly, funnily enough, and actually I feel good saying this, I don't think it changed things that much for me. And, you know, I attribute that maybe to two things. One is that I've not necessarily been, you know, a very spiritually practicing or grounded person. When I hear soul, I think like spiritual. And I guess in my mind, I feel like that it changed my body and it changed who, you know, what I, how I live physically in the world. And it, and it did, it did affect how I think about things, not because, well, now I think about how am I going to go upstairs or anything like logistical, but much more so, you know, at the time it happened, I was focused on all these, you know, adventures in life and what I was going to be doing in the next year and the friend, you know, my best friend who I was going to be living with into a, oh, okay, I have no choice but to sort of pause and very much refocus what I'm, what I'm about. 
Um, because instead of being about, you know, adventuring off in life in these ways, it, it very much just shifted to like, now my focus is recovery and getting back to a place where I feel safe and good again, uh, in my life. And so, you know, honestly, I don't know that my, my like notion of soul really shifted and all that. I think it, what shifted most for me was like, what am I about, um, mm-hmm. in this moment and ongoing? And I think if there's been a lasting change, it's been, you know, I've always been, like I said, a little more tuned into sort of grief, sorrow, inward focus, um, for whatever reasons, you know, how I grew up or whatever lessons I learned as a little kid. But I think this made it feel a little bit close. Actually, you know, at least this is what it is. Thanks for bearing with me. I tend to work. No, I I am the same way. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It feels like I said, you know, I talked earlier about like the projector screen getting ripped and, um, you know, in, in all this beautiful poetry, which I'll totally mince now people talk about, right. Like that, that screen being really close at the surface or like Rumi talks about like souls coming to through and back and forth through the door. Mm-hmm. Don't go back to sleep. Um, and to me, it feels like my awareness around that got elevated a notch up. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and not like, uh, now I'm so aware of this, but there are more times in my life. And I think probably for many of us, as we get older, this is a natural thing. And as, as thing, significant events happen in our life more often, I think about, um, well, think about, I'm honestly astounded by, uh, the way that life happens and how close it is to the edge all the time. And not in a, like life is so precious, we need to savor it kind of way. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, that That's happens too. too. But just a, yeah, that is true too. Absolutely. But it's just incredible to me that, um, we as humans go about our day and in, in this crazy mix of like the mundane, like getting the job done yeah. and paying the bills and, you know, getting our coffee and whatever. And at any moment, a boss is right around the corner or, uh, you know, our, friend moves away or these massively significant events that there's no way to predict. There's no way to, you know, prepare necessarily. And they're just so, um, spontaneously they'll just er erupt and show up in these crazy ways that none of us can predict or prepare for. And so to me, that's still a semi daily, (laughs) uh, realization of basically of awe and sort of like, this is just, this is crazy and insane in both a, you know, a, a sort of overwhelming way, but also in like a pretty incredibly magical way too. Um, you know, depending on the mood I'm in, it seems incredibly magical or it seems daunting and intimidating or terrifying, overwhelming or terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I'd say increasingly throughout life. And this is one of the big events for me, at least it feels like I can live into the sort of awe and mystery in a way that is, um, like heartening as opposed to disheartening. That is, you know, even amidst all the question marks, the fact that, you know, I can go through that and come out the other side and feel like I can truly say, not just to, you know, people please, like I'm glad with where I am now and I wouldn't take it back. Or I, I you know, I don't know what your growth path is or with your husband and what that's brought for you, but it does feel like as time goes on, the skill or like the, maybe the potential, that's not quite the right word, but it feels like the opportunity is in taking that grief, that loss, that whatever it might be. And how can that lead to 
a deeper sense of connection or joy if that's what it is, you know, for you. But yeah. for me, I feel like it's that deeper sense of connection or something bigger. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You touched on so many things. I do think there is that, um, sort of when these things come out of the blue and especially, especially these unexpected sort of moments, it is an opportunity for us to sort of be reflective that we were living maybe at this fallacy that life is something that you control, you know, and that we are just mastering it all the time. And those events remind us that we aren't. And so for many of us over time, I think there's an opportunity to sort of integrate that knowledge that it isn't and not live in terror that, that we're not in control and yet live sort of maybe on the other side of that pendulum more often than not, which is what a gift and a joy things are. And I really want to name for for myself, if somebody had said this to me the week that Eric died, I would have been like, F you. I don't find anything joyful about this. I don't like that life isn't, you know, predictable and controllable. So I want to say that this isn't the path everybody will take on their journey. And for me, and it sounds like for you, that is one result of sort of integrating these events into our stories and into our lives is that it certainly has allowed me to show up and see um, instead of running from connection and love, which might be frankly, that was my sort of early reaction after Eric died. It was like, I'm going to shut down. I'm not going to care about anybody because except for my daughter, because caring about people just means losing them and, you know, really shut down. I think I've evolved over these last eight years to really see that, like, the one thing, the one gift that we have in this life is uh, making meaningful connections with people and to not take those for granted, which, frankly, to circle back around to how we met is one of the reasons I just absolutely value the friendship that we were able to strike up is is if I had lived in a controlled world or you had and thought you don't just introduce yourself to strangers and talk about deep, heavy things, we never would have met. But I think it's because perhaps you and I both have this appreciation that um, being on this earth is a gift and you sort of need to ch- cherish those connections when they come, I think is, is important. You, mm-hmm. you touched on something I want to... I'm curious about, and we may be having to wrap up our conversation just because of the limitations of my studio time, but you touched on something before about the sort of living, you know, you and I shared that quote the other day about living into the questions, but about what this journey has been for you is is that there's just more questions than answers and there's just less predictability. So how have you seen, how have you navigated living with ambiguity how has that shown up in your life what what practice does that take for you what does that look like so this is a perfect question and so relevant for me because i am a software engineer you know i work in like code all day super analytical i love like detail orientation i love having my plan uh, straight a student back in school valedictorian like i am all about control and uh, and historically I, it's been a real challenge for me to live in, live with unknowns and to like trust that things will work themselves out. And also, uh, I, you know, I have this internalized story now of like, well, look what happens when you trust the world. You get hit by a truck is what happens, you know, like total bullshit, but you know, part of me, it's like in my cells in a way. So, um, and in some of the work I've been doing, you know, so, so the answer to this, I'd say largely is it's, it's been hard and constant thing for me. And I'm not going to pretend like I have the answers yeah. here. I'd say what has worked for me is to, 
um, surround myself very intentionally with people and um, like things, activities that force me to be in my heart more. And when I say heart, to me, that is really um, synonymous with living in question mark because from my head, it's very hard to live in any sort of question mark or gray area. Uh, whereas from my heart, it's a lot easier to, I, I think the specific reason there is from my head, it's all about knowing what's happening and making sense of it from heart. It's about feeling into it and, and, you know, tuning into the emotion or the, whatever that content is. And so when there are gray areas, if I can just tune into how I'm feeling and where I'm at and, you know, what I'm desiring or what feels, you know, comfortable or uncomfortable, um, that's a lot easier to just trust that I can work with those instincts than it is to like be able to play on steps one, two, three, et cetera. So what that's looked like recently, I can give you just my, you know, version yes, of that please. is, um, yeah. So I, I, you know, one of the frameworks I think of people in is, you know, very oversimplified, but it can be helpful is, you know, analyzers, controllers, promoters, and supporters as sort of four energies. Yeah. There's like many other energies, right? Are you like talking King, disc? warrior, magician, lover. I don't even know what disc oh, is. it's kind probably. of, the, yeah, anyways, it's one of these personality uh, assessment tools. Okay, well, I just gave a plug for I'm disc. Sure. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I'll check it out. I'm, I'm sure it is. Um, so there's, thinking about it in those ways, to me, that looks like surrounding myself with people and or activities that are less analyzer, less controller, and much more sort of promoter energy or like, you know, quote unquote, lover energy, heart energy, um, intuition energy. And for me, that looks like specifically the people in my life who bring that, um, like on this, this workshop I was recently coaching, the one you and I've talked about in passing. Yeah. Um, there's one man named Jeremy who is so the complete opposite of me. And on, you know, out on the street, if I met that guy, he would drive me insane. <laughs> and yet, uh, and, and like he lives in total possibility. He comes from his heart. He's very present. He has a tough time with details and planning and being with him and um, being with him with the intention of let me like soak this in yeah. is like so freaking delightful because it's basically a vacation for my head and I just get to tag along. And, um, you know, it's kind of like a, you know, take your kid to work day. Like if I just follow him around for the day there, I get so much of like, oh, you can do that. You can just uh, not stress about that thing. You can just speak to your heart in that moment, you know, yeah. those, those sorts of things. It's so liberating. Do you think that's like and the kind of gift you were able to do in your younger years, be able to just appreciate people's differences or would that just been something you would have shut down because it's so contrary to your approach to life? You know, I think it's probably both. Okay. Uh, what immediately what comes up for me is one, like, as I feel like as a kid, um, I have a lot less sort of like analyzer tendencies mm -hmm. but i also i also just react i didn't censor myself as much so True. if i didn't like what someone spring and i probably just would have like walked away and that would have been that and be like i don't like you bye, bye. um <laughs> right i wouldn't have the like well maybe i should hear them yeah. out uh so probably some of both um but the so the other thing i was going to say is and this is very tactical for living in the unknowns but i think connecting with that mystery in whatever ways work for people i mean like there's a reason why people go do medicine ceremonies or you know practice with a shaman and do plant medicine or you know go on meditation retreats where it's so much more about like just sitting with presence or you know and the questions whatever that might mean i like i think again to go back to the gym analogy which i think really stands the test of time like any of these things if we want to stretch into new ways of being you know one is to have some powerful magical experience that just flips the switch and you know 
losing a husband or getting hit by a car or, um, you know, having a very powerful transcendental experience can all do that. But I think in addition and or more commonly, it takes the repetition. Um, I wish it didn't. God, I wish it didn't. Right. But I do think that's true. I think that's such an important piece that you're saying, because so for so so many of us, all of us, when we'll live on this earth long enough, we will have one or more of those sort of pivotal moments um, that will kind of shake our foundation. And it requires a sort of intentionality that's going to be over the long haul. And for some folks, and for, even for me early on in my early grief, that felt so daunting. You know, it just felt like, am I going to be having to put in this practice you know, mm-hmm. forever and ever to get to some unknown place and some unknown way of being because this is all new territory for me. Um, I can remember how that feels to feel so daunting and eight years in so far to my hopefully, you know, 40 something more years on this earth. I, I do recognize that analogy is that I am continuing to show up at the gym, as it were, and do that work. And it isn't quite as difficult most days. Um, and I'm lifting heavier and heavier weights to keep the analogy going. But some days I show up at the gym and it's like I've never worked out a day in my life and everything feels incredibly hard. And that is kind of the nature of this podcast. You know, grief is a sneaky bitch and as much growth in living into our curiosity and living into our heart is important and is an opportunity for us to find a sense of connection and belonging we need to just be reminded that it's okay. Grief is going to show up sometimes and, you know, knock you off your ass. And that's okay. You just have to get up whenever you're ready and continue on. And surround yourself with... Oh, go ahead, please. No, no, no. No, no, no. And surround yourself with people who are willing to, like, also lay down on the floor with you when you get knocked down and not drag you up off your feet, by the way. And that was just sort of my point, is that we need to hold space for each other when, when... 15 years later or eight years later or eight months later, um, we get knocked down. What we need from the people around us is for them to know and to just get down on the floor with us and lay there with us. Oh, I love that. I have never heard that. And that is such a good image. And I love that. I'm going to take that one. Yeah. And, and the other thing I heard you say is, um, you know, like the simple reframe of grief isn't necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. Um, just like going to the gym is uncomfortable. I mean, not right. quite the same, but like good things in life come in flavors that don't always feel so good. But the reframe too, and I'm not, it's not easy to necessarily live or breathe into this when it's in the heat of the moment, but the reframe that one goal in life is to be happy all the time. Uh, or to experience as much joy as possible. And another reframe is to live as integrated as possible because fulfillment, yeah, joy is a form of fulfillment and satisfaction, but deep fulfillment, I believe, comes from a sense of integration. Mm. And so that means like all aspects of you know the human experience. And if we live only happy all the time, we're missing a slice of life. And if we wallow in our grief all the time, we're definitely missing a slice of life. But doing one without the other, like neither one of those alone is the full human experience. And I, you know, for one, and I imagine other folks might say, no, I just want to be happy all the time. And that's fine too. But uh, if that's possible, great, go get it. I'm, yeah. I'm not convinced yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this idea and, and this, you know, uh, we talked earlier about the prophet by Khalil Gibran and there's a, that chapter in there on sorrow and joy to me kind of blew my mind open in a way, or just put words to this idea that, um, 
the two sorrow and joy are not two separate things. They are, you know, linked sides of the same spectrum. Absolutely. And this idea that like I have it in front of me and this one quote where he says, the deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. Mm. The idea that like the depth of your joy is innately tied to the depth of your experience, both of sorrow, of loss, of whatever it might be that carves out space for all of the things. And to me, that's just a great reframe that gives so much permission and almost encouragement that like, you know, stuffing sadness, yeah, it has its physical and mental toll, but like, if you want that joy, the, the gym is in times experiencing the sorrow, right? That's the weightlifting routine. You're talking about sort of breathing deeply. I think Elizabeth Alexander has this quote in one of her um, poems about sort of breathing deeply into all of the spectrum of emotions and that, that, that having all of those sort of in its, in the spectrum allows you to feel each of them so much more beautifully. And and I might reflect back to you, Mickey, that beautiful reframe you talked about and, and reminding us about um, that passage from the prophet, which was holding sort of sorrow and joy. And it's only when we sort of fully live into both of those things that and integrate them that we can really live a fulfilled life. And I would reflect back to you something interesting. I feel that's a full circle moment to where we began, because when I asked you what were your earliest memories of grief and and the griever and how they process that you shared very much about the ways in which your family both through your mom's depression and also through their work as veterinarians and having you have the ritual of of having loved an animal and watching it pass they really you said they really modeled for you holding both of those truths to be you know true both of those emotions experiences to be true the sorrow and the joy so i think this is a discovery that you you know, has been sort of with you all along and it's, and um, it's being fleshed out as you have more and more life experiences. Does that resonate? Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. And this, and that reframe, I mean, I've gone through so much of my life feeling self-conscious for being a, you know, a somber or serious person. Mm. And I totally own that uh, in a lot of my life, you know, my connection with sorrow and grief was a superpower in a way. And I treated happiness like it was fake or false or temporary. And so there's definitely, you know, overkill on either mm-hmm. side. And I think the, the the real helpful thing for me was the reframe of, hey, sorrow can be a really beautiful thing. Grief can be a really powerful thing. Absolutely. Like a true superpower and it's necessary. And to the detriment of happiness, maybe not so much. Like it's all of the above, not either or. And that to me has been, um, you know, if nothing else, so such good like permission that I don't I get to feel all of it and I get to tune in and see where am I maybe holding on or really grasping or getting stuck to because you know that can always happen as well absolutely you're really talking about having patience and compassion with yourself to sort of move along that continuum and to notice and just be mindful without sort of forcing yourself to one end or the other but understanding that it's really it, it it encompasses the fullest expression of our life. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, to be, you know, totally transparent, like I f- fall off that horse all the time and forget and need reminders. And, you know, that's when the books are amazing. Yeah. And friends. Poems are and, amazing. And connecting is amazing. Yeah. And friends. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Spoiler alert, you're human is what you're trying to say, that you don't sort of live perfectly into this balance of embracing joy and sorrow at all times. 
Right. Yeah. Totally. You're really bursting my bubble here, Mickey. I thought you were superhuman. <laughs> You're just mortal like the rest of us. Yeah. I hope you still want to be my friend. Absolutely. I get out with the Absolutely. Well, you know, spoiler alert, point 2.0, I am too. And I struggle with that daily. And it's the gift of practice and it's the gift of cultivating connections with people that you can be vulnerable with to say, today I'm really in my sorrow space and this is where I need to be or today I'm really in my sorrow space and I could really use your help reminding me about what joy means for me in my life and just being able to be vulnerable in that way so that you can feel a sense of belonging which is you know I think I keep going back to that word in every conversation I have I think is really our reason for being it's sort of our driving force in this world and so being able to hold space for each other as we vacillate between sorrow and joy is um i think the biggest gift that we can to give one another well i sad to say i think our time is up for this conversation but i want to thank you so much for showing up so curious and vulnerable and authentic and sharing a piece of your a piece of your story with us and with me, I really value your um, willingness to share your voice with me and with our audience. And I look forward, I hope, to many more conversations, both on the air and off. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much, Lisa, and many more to come. That's another episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Thanks to Mickey for showing up with candor and vulnerability and humor. I told y'all, he's a pretty funny guy. Thanks to you, our listeners, for bearing witness to our conversation. I hope perhaps you saw a bit of your own journey reflected in our conversation, or maybe learned something that will help you as you show up to support someone you love. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer. Please join us again soon for another episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. <laughs>